Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome into the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is with me. As always, changing things up a little bit. We usually do our mailbags on Wednesdays, but because National Signing Day was on a Wednesday, uh, we devoted all of Wednesday's show to that. Now we've moved mailbag to Friday for this week, this week only. And before we dive into... Your eight best questions that you sent us this week. I want to remind Duck Territory listeners, uh, readers that are, that are free. Um, you can subscribe now for $9.95 for your, for a month to month price and you instantly get CBS All Access for free. That's, uh, a, a platform that's CBS is also their streaming platform. Over 10,000 live shows, movies, sports, all commercial free, all in your palm of your hand or your cell phone or your smart TV or your pat, your iPad, your tablet, your, your, your computer. Whatever way you watch TV, you can get CBS All Access. That comes free with your membership to DuckTerritory.com or you can subscribe for an annual subscription, uh, that's billed out one time for $107.40 that you want to, and that's basically a dollar savings a month, so you're saving twelve dollars a year by going annual, uh, more than a month's savings. So highly suggest you guys jump in on that. Now, it's kind of that period where football's on the mind, basketball is becoming more of the focal point because once signing day is over, once the Super Bowl happens, uh, it's kind of basketball season for six or eight weeks or so. Uh, we've got a lot of basketball questions. We've also got a lot of football questions. So, Eric, take it away. First half of the show is going to be football. Second half is going to be basketball. Let's start with the first football question from at baby Skoda O. What are our biggest recruiting needs for the 2021 football class? Um, before I hand over to Matt to kind of jump in on this, uh, just a little context. Oregon does have six verbal commitments right now, uh, four from five-star prospects. Um, they've got... Basically, they've got a, quite a few positions already addressed. Seven McGee's a running back. They've got Keith McGee, uh, or Keith McGee. Keith Brown is an inside linebacker. Anthony Beavers and Kyron Ware-Hudson's both listed as athletes, although I think Ware-Hudson expected to pay, play offense. Beavers expected to play defense. Um, and then a couple of offensive line recruits and Josh Simmons and uh, Jackson Light. Uh, so already a pretty good start here and already a class that, that looks like it's on its way to being maybe another top 10 recruiting class, currently ranked seventh nationally, first in the Pac-12. But obviously uh, a lot more pieces to add, Matt. Uh, just looking at kind of what needs to be addressed, uh, what positions do you think are, are maybe a focal point for Oregon right now? You, I, I think quarterback always needs to be – you always need to sign a quarterback in the class. And so – even though every quarterback on Oregon's roster as of February 7th is 
a sophomore or younger, you need to go out and, and sign another quarterback because look, transfers happen. Guys go pro early. Guys don't work out. So I, I think finding a quarterback is going to be an important one. Um, I still believe you need to go out and sign some receivers because before you know it, look, the reality is Johnny Johnson and Jalen Red are both seniors. They're gone after the, after the 2020 football season. And then from there, it, it's, it's crazy to think about in, in recruiting, but this is how it is. Pittman will be draft eligible after the 2021 season. Devin Williams will be draft eligible after the 20 season. Brian Addison will be draft eligible uh, after the 2020 season. So if some of these guys at receiver blow up this season and have really big, big years, offensively, you, you could see one of them maybe decide to go pro and you need to go out and find some talent at the receiver position. And, and that's in of itself, even if they don't go pro. Um, I'd like to see a tight end be added to this class, maybe even two, really, uh, looking at some of the, the roster spots that they have and, and guys at that position. I mean, they moved DJ Johnson over there because DJ Johnson's not playing a ton at defensive end and they have a depth issue at tight end. So, if you're moving defensive linemen over to tight end like they did a couple years ago with Hunter Campmoyer, that tells you you need depth at that position. So go out get a tight end. I think offensive tackle is going to be another one for Oregon. Um, they signed a couple guys this past year at, at that position, but I, I'd really like to see them go out and, and sign one of the nation's best at tackle. Uh, Panay Sewell's more than likely gone, and then maybe a year later, Stephen Jones could be gone. Uh, and then... On the defensive side of the football, they're they're pretty stacked up front along the defensive line, but I don't think you can always go against finding elite defensive linemen. Cristobal's shown that. I think the back half of the secondary is where you want to focus. You know, Thomas Graham, Diamond Lenore, Nick Pickett, Brady Breeze, they're all seniors. And then Javon Holland is a is a junior draft eligible. You could theoretically lose all five of your starting corner your defensive backs after this season and you're left with a lot of youth. I mean, yes, Michael Wright is look looks like a star. Verone McKinley was a redshirt freshman all American this past season. Um, Jamal Hill and DJ James both played some football, you know, but didn't play a ton. Um, so I, I I think you need to go out and find some cornerbacks, some safeties uh, in this class, even though you signed Bennett Williams last year and, and you added a Dante Manning and a JJ Greenfield and a Luke Hill, you, you potentially lose all five of your starting defensive backs. That's a sign you need to go out and continue to load up. I, I think that's a point you just made there about potentially losing all five starting defensive backs that I hadn't really considered, but that, that is true. That's, that's very much a possibility. And you look at how many seniors are in that secondary. Um, and that's also what makes this 2020 class where they did go out and find some of the top defensive so backs. So important, yeah. And I, I just did a story on the site about how Dante Manning is the highest-rated defensive back regardless of corner or safety designation Oregon has ever signed. Um, Luke Hill is 10th in terms of the top cornerbacks Oregon has ever signed. Bennett Williams is 8th. As a, as, a, as a team, they have, I believe, six of the top 10 corners ever signed, at least since the started recruiting rankings back in 2001, and then five of the top ten safeties. So this team does have a lot of those players, but like you just mentioned, a lot of those guys are going to be draft eligible or, or just finish up with eligibility after 2020. So there will be some urgency in 2021, but I think it is another positive that they went out in 2020 and, and did find some players and obviously had some success in 2019 with, with Mikhail Wright and a couple of the 
players like DJ James and Jamal Hill we saw play at least. But no, I think that's a good point in terms of like this secondary could be the best in program history this year. But going forward, there's going to be a lot of answers uh, that are a lot of questions they're going to have to answer uh, back there because they will lose an awful lot. Second question from at JD High Roller. Going to switch it up a bit. Both of you pick your breakout player for the 2020 season on both sides of the ball. It doesn't have to be a freshman, but someone under the radar. Who and why? Um, I will start with an offensive player, and then I'll throw it back over to Matt. Um, I think offensively, and we, we've done something I think similar to this in the past as well, but not on the mailbag. Um, uh, but offensively, I think a player like Micah Pittman is a guy who, you know, and I don't know exactly what the qualifications are for a breakout sure. player, but I think there's still so much left for him. I, I think we saw at times in 2019 he played at a very high level, um, but I also don't know if we ever got the full picture of him because he suffered two significant injuries, and by the time it seemed like he was starting to round back into form from the first one, he suffers the second injury and, and is out for uh, you know five or six weeks. So there's still, to me, I think some question marks there in terms of like I think we can see him be a lot better. Is what I is what I'll say in 2020, and so I could see him being a player that. Fans are very aware of what the upside is, but I think we could see him start to realize a little bit more of that in 2020 than what we saw in 2019, which was a season where he was just, uh, you know, I mean, his, the season was mitigated by by a couple of injuries that were pretty significant. And again, kudos to him for coming back from both of them and, and, and giving it a go. But uh, certainly someone that if he could stay healthy all the way through the 2020 season, I think that'd be huge for this Oregon offense. I was going to say Micah Pittman. I'll also throw out Devin Williams at receiver. We've heard a lot of good things about the transfer from USC. He's bulked up. He's had a year in the system now, basically. I think he's going to have a big year for, for Oregon. Plus, Oregon's top three receivers next year going into the spring football, Jalen Red, Johnny Johnson, Micah Pittman. Not in that order, just those are your top three. Right. Problem is, is if you want to start your best three guys, you're, you're, you're going six foot, Five eight and five eleven at the receiver position. That's really small, and so you need someone that's taller that can be that possession type guy to step up. And Devin Williams is six five, two hundred. Certainly brings size to the position. Could really help Oregon up front, at, uh, offensively at, at at the receiver position. I think another guy that that I think that will get lost in the shuffle because he he'll play offensive line um, is Alex Forsyth, a junior. He literally could play. Four positions for Oregon. He could he could be right tackle, right guard, center, or left guard. He's not going to play left tackle because he's not going to replace Panay Sewell. But he could be at, at any of those four spots as a starter for Oregon. And then real quick defensively, I, I, I don't know who to choose, but Brandon Dorless and Popo Amave, neither guy is going to be a starter for Oregon in the, the 2020 season. But I think both those guys are going to really turn a ton of heads. I, I like those picks on defense, and, and I was also just going to say Stephen Jones offensively is somebody to maybe keep an eye out. I think he's obviously a player that they didn't play at all this last season, trying to register him and, and, and maintain as much eligibility as possible. Um, I think he could be a really, really good player, potentially at right tackle, potentially at guard, depending upon what happens at right tackle. Um, and then defensively, a name that I have said before and, and I'll continue to say, I, I think Adrian Jackson is somebody people kind of forget about. He was a pretty – I forgot player. about him. Yeah, pretty yeah, pretty important contributor back in 2018 as a true freshman. Got hurt last year, missed the entire season. There are a couple of linebacker spots that are available. Um, he is going to have a chance, I think, we think for that outside spot that Bryson Young was playing. Uh, I know Jackson's body type is not quite the same. He's a little bit smaller, um, but from an athletic perspective, you know, he he is the, one of the top 
top guys in this roster if he's able to kind of get back to the form he was in in 2018 and as a high school recruit. So um, he's somebody that I look at and say, I don't know if he's going to be a starter either, but I, I think he could play a significant role there. He's so athletic, and, and at least on special teams or maybe on passing downs almost exclusively, I, I think he's somebody to kind of keep an eye out for, somebody that, um, like Matt said, I think a lot of people just kind of have forgotten um, about him, uh, a really talented player who who got hurt last year who I think could come back and, and be significant this year. Third question from at Smith Garrett 91 Outside of Marcus Mariota, which recruit slash recruits have made the biggest impact on the football program? Um, good question from Garrett here. Uh, first thing that came to mind for me was the was D'Anthony Thomas. I, I just still remember being back east when Oregon, and this was a while ago, but I was working at Scout at the time. When Oregon played at Virginia, I went back for that game, and he he was already, I think he was a sophomore that year, he, people people back there loved him. They knew about him. They were excited to watch him. Uh, he was kind of the he he was who everybody wanted to to see. And, and this is on again back east on a national level. I, I just think people almost take for granted a little bit because he did have an, a, an kind of a down. You know, his final season at Oregon was not a very good season. He got hurt. Took a while to come back. Didn't end up kind of turning heads like he had his first couple of years. But I look at him as somebody that really was instrumental for a while there. Of you would basically any recruit you would talk to for for four or five years was like who's your favorite player at Oregon? Oh, it's D'Anthony Thomas. Right. And, and the other one that that got mentioned a lot in similar vein was was the Michael James. Uh, in, in terms of there there was a time period and maybe it's past now, which is crazy to think about because he was he played at Oregon uh, not not even more than ten years ago. But there was a time where where Michael James was kind of brought up. Similar to D'Anthony Thomas in terms of like from a national perspective, this was a guy everybody was aware of, everybody knew of. I think those two players are kind of synonymous for what that era of Oregon football was known as, where they had maybe a little bit undersized guys, but they were so explosive, so fast, uh, so dangerous. And, and when you put them in the offense, that kind of unleashed them like that, which was, you know, which is why Chip Kelly was so successful at Oregon, was because he had these type of athletes. Um, they were really, really. Uh, instrumental, I think, in that era of football. Uh, Matt, do you have a couple guys that, that step out? I think D'Anthony Thomas would be the one that I would go to. Um, if we want to talk just maybe the current era that we're in, and that's the Mario Cristobal era, I would say Panay yeah. Sewell. Um, that's the guy that I think is kind of, if you want to describe Cristobal's culture, Cristobal's program, I think Panay Sewell is the guy that you you would point at and say that is what Oregon is building, that is what the culture is, that is the, the persona that Oregon will have. Uh, very, very polite, awesome human being off the football field, and then on it, one of the most physical and imposing players the country has seen at his respected position. So, uh, and re- regardless of any position, honestly. So I, I think that would be, if we want to go current era, Penesa will be the guy that, that I, w- I would fall with. And I threw a third name down here as well, and that's just Kayvon from a, just from recent history. I know he's only played one season at Oregon, but, uh, in terms of, I think helping out Oregon from a recruiting perspective in like the 2020 and 21 class and going forward, guys like Kayvon Thibodeau, Justin Flo, um, who, Flo obviously hasn't even played a snap at Oregon, but, but, but players who will, that are very well respected down in Southern California that are five star recruits, clearly, undeniably talented players. I think those type of additions, those type of recruits are, are, are significant in terms of continuing Oregon's success on the recruiting trail. And 
frankly, I don't know. I mean, I think Kayvon coming to Oregon sort of paves the way for players like Justin Flo to come to Oregon too. So I, I think that's one where it's still pretty recent history here. Um, but I think we're going to continue to see that that recruiting victory, getting Kayvon Thibodeau to Eugene, pay dividends kind of down the line, uh, you know, the further and further away we get from that signing. 100%. I'm, I'm with you on that one. All right, fourth from at WindyTree503. Jay Butterfield's stock dropped steadily over the last couple of recruiting ranking updates. Did he really not perform well his senior year? I know his dad worked with him on how worked with him on his own and was doing workouts with a quarterback training coach. But besides not attending a lot of camps, do you have any guesses? Um, you know, we should say that Butterfield remained a four-star prospect, remained one of the top quarterback recruits in the country, but he did see a bit of a decline. Um, Matt, do you have any insight or any opinion on, on why Butterfield might be a little bit lesser ranked than he was when he first committed to Oregon last year? It, it stems with some guys started to just improve on their ranking while he kind of stayed the same, if you will. You look at, you know, obviously DJU and, and Bryce Young were guys that were generational type talents and they can, they, they got better as, as seniors, as crazy as that sounds. And so they, they distanced themselves from everybody else. But then you also just look at other quarterbacks that kind of got better as the year went on. I mean, CJ Stroud was the, like a late addition to the, Elite 11 camp this August and, or July, I should say. I mean, he was like a very late addition. It was a really strong debate on if, if he should be in it going in. And then he won the thing and that kind of jump started his rise. And he finished as like a low four star quarterback to going to now where, where he finished in the class as a five star and the number two quarterback in the country for pro style. And so that's one guy that, that jumped Butterfield. Ethan Garber's Another quarterback, he, uh, Stroud's committed to Ohio State, signed with Ohio State. Garbers is another one. Pro style quarterback, just got better and he's committed to Washington and his, you know, his game continued to improve and he took leaps and bounds and he climbed and he went, he, he finished fourth in the country. Butterfield's still fifth. It's not like that's right. a bad, I mean, it's, it's not like he's terrible or he went really, you know, he struggled all of a sudden. It's just some guys below him. Saw quicker ranking, you know, quicker increases in, in their production and their talents and they just got better. And Butterfield got better, but he didn't grow and explode like others below him did. And look, the reality is if, if you're going to bump a four star guy to a five star quarterback, other guys are going to drop. Or if you're going to bump a Garbers who is outside of the top 100 into the top 100 guy or top 120, Guys are going to have to drop. You're going to have to move guys down. I mean, it's not an indication that Butterfield all of a sudden forgot how to play football. It's just some other guys got better at a, at a quicker rate than than him during his senior season. I don't think there's really any doubt that Butterfield's one of the top quarterbacks. It's just some guys below him improved a little bit more than he did. This is kind of a little bit off the topic here, but just looking at the way – 247 ends up ranking the quarterbacks in this class. The three highest-rated quarterback recruits in this class are all from the state of California. None of them sign with Pac-12 schools. All of them go to other conferences. Um, I know we talked earlier on the – and here I'm just dragging the Pac-12 for its recruiting, but it's really hard to believe that USC, UCLA, maybe even Oregon and Washington couldn't keep 
Bryce Young, DJ Ugalele, or CJ Stroud. None of them stay on the West Coast. They go to Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State, all the right. national top pro- programs and powers. Um, that could be a thing where in a couple of years here, we look up and go, man, the top quarterbacks are all at those schools and they were all from California. And you're just wondering, how did, how did the Pac-12 not even hold on to any of these guys? Cause it was a really, really strong year at quarterback in the state of California, obviously. Um, they had five, uh, five of the top ten quarterbacks are from California. Uh, two of them end up in the Pac-12, like Matt said, Ethan Garber is at Washington, Jay Butterfield at Oregon. But uh, missing on those three guys, I just wonder if in a couple of years from now we're not talking about how, boy, that that 2020 class where they let Young, Ugalele, and, and Stroud all leave the, the, the footprint, boy, was that a, a costly, costly recruiting loss for the Pac-12 because that, that's three yeah. really good players. It's just, I mean – to not even sign one of the, the top three guys are all California guys and to not even see one of them stay in the conference is an indictment on just where the conference as a whole stands. Oregon had some interest in CJ Stroud, but they already, and he had a lot of interest in Oregon, but they had already landed a commitment from Butterfield and, and you know, I, I think it says a lot to stick with a guy, you, you know, and this is, you're splitting hairs here, but, I think it says a lot to stick with Butterfield than than to dump him and go after a Stroud. I mean, he kind of explodes, um, but that that explains that. And you know, USC had a ton of opportunities to get Stroud, and for whatever reason, they didn't offer him until he was on campus for an unofficial visit when Oregon went down to USC and smacked him. And that's when USC offered, and it had been months since he had been wanting an offer from USC. So. It just stings that none of those guys are going to be in the Pac-12. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast old man winter here if i had it my way it would stay winter all year long short days wind chill black ice and a good polar vortex (laughs) heaven wait is it getting warm in here your cold snap is over old man winter spring has arrived 
Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Pramer. Ex is with me as always. Doing our... Wednesday mailbag on a Friday, so I guess technically today it's a Friday mailbag. Uh, four questions in, four more to go. All right, fifth question and first non-football question comes from at only here for sports. Where does the win versus UConn rank in the greatest wins in women's basketball program history? I would say second, first being the win versus Mississippi State to get to the Final Four last year. Third would be the win versus Team USA. Thoughts? Um yeah, it's hard to well. To, first off, it's hard to know where how to really. What, what do you do with the Team USA win? That was an exhibition win. I, I don't want to say that Team USA wasn't trying or anything like that, but it, it wasn't a game that counts. So it's yeah, it's, it's kind of hard not to, in the record books. Yeah, it's not on the record book. It doesn't count towards Oregon's record this season. Uh, it's sort of hard to know how you want to really handle that. Um, I'm I'm not sure I'd include that in the best in pro. It's going certainly it'd be one of the most notable, most memorable. It's a moment. When, it's a moment. Yeah, it's, a, it's a huge moment. I think in years we'll talk about when you're talking about Sabrina Ionescu, be like, man, isn't it crazy that she scored? I think it was 30 points against the you know the American national women's basketball team in an exhibition, and they won the game. That'll be something we talk about. But I don't know if I really would put that even in the. I don't know if that really even qualifies for me. So. Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of discounting that one, even though it it happened. We all know it happened. We know it was a huge thing. Um, it's hard because this is. I mean, you think about what a what the win over UConn on the road is, um, and like just objectively, like what that game means. Like it's it's really really impressive. I mean, I know it's still fresh in our minds. It was earlier this week, but um, it, it's hard not to say that's right near the top. I mean, beating a program like UConn the way they did on the road. With UConn still being fourth national, I know people are saying UConn's not typical UConn, but it's not like this is a UConn team that was like 15 and five. They were 19 and one coming into this game, and their only loss had been to Baylor, who was ranked second in the country. This is a good UConn team. Just not maybe it's not quite what UConn has been historically, where they win like you know 37 games and, and you know go undefeated and win a championship, but still a very good UConn team. I do think the win over Mississippi State that he brings up to go to the Final Four. Um, that, that to me will remain the top pick. I don't think there's much question, um, about that. That was a program defining win that gets into a place that they had never gotten before over against a, a program that isn't quite UConn, but is in that general discussion. Mississippi State's been a program that has been very, very competitive, competing for championships, playing in the Final Four for a while now. That was a big, big win. Um, I, I think this probably second makes a lot of sense. And I'm trying to think about other games here. I know they have had some, Think back to last year when they beat Stanford at Stanford by I think it was 30 or 40 points. That was impressive. This year's win over Stanford in the same means was impressive. Uh, a win over Stanford, a lot of Stanford's here, but a win over Stanford in the Pac-12 Conference Championship game. I think it was um, in 17-18 was another notable one. Sabrina, I think that was her career high before she broke the record recently. So there's some wins over Stanford during this run, but I, I just think that that Mississippi State win, considering everything that it meant at the time, would probably be at the top of my list. I think that's a good pick. 
Um, and it would be, I'd have to really think back, like, prior to, pre-Ionescu to really think about wins that would compare, but I, I have, I'm kind of drawing a blank there. Um, and so I guess if, if you're listening to this and you, and there's a really obvious one that I'm missing from like the early 90s or something like that, throw it my way. But in terms of this run and this, and Kelly Graves, which is, I think pretty clearly the, this is the best stretch in program history without a doubt. There's no question about it. I mean, they're, they're in position here to make the final four potentially for consecutive years and basically the elite eight every year under Sabrina. Uh, th- th- this is, this is the top run. And I think that Mississippi State run, uh, that win, is right at the top, and the UConn win, to me, would be second, at least right now. I think a couple others. I mean, I, I agree. The, Mich- the Mississippi State one's probably number one. UConn's probably number two. But just some other ones that have some significance. Oregon 71, Temple 70, the first round of the NCAA tournament in 2017. I think Ruthie Hebert made, like, a a buzzer beater or a shot in the final couple seconds to okay. win that game in the first round of the NCAA tournament. And it was an upset. And that, that was a, that kind of jump started the, 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 oh my gosh, this team could actually be pretty good. They were all freshmen essentially. Yep. The next game they played Duke in Duke, uh, I guess technically in Cameron Indoor Stadium. And they won that one 74 to 65 to advance to the Sweet 16. And then another big one was that same year, Oregon beat Maryland 71 to 63 to get to the Elite Eight. And Maryland was a three seed. So, you know, they, they just, at that run, they knocked off the seven, the two, and the three to get into the Elite Eight. And I know he's talking about big wins, but I think if if you ask the players what games have had meaningful impacts on their careers at Oregon or Kelly Graves, I think they would point to the Elite Eight game in 2017 against UConn in which they lost 90-52 to a lot of Oregon seniors talk about how that was like an eye-opening experience of this is how this is if you want to get to this level you have to play how UConn plays every single minute of the game to get there. And that opened I think the eyes of this team of what could happen and what the potential could be for this group if they applied those theories in, into practice and we saw that play out at UConn four years later when they developed, you know, they delivered the largest margin of victory at, at, at Gallup Arena for a UConn opponent. Good points in terms of acknowledging that 2017 run and uh, with what has happened now. I think that, that my, my fault, maybe not even bringing that up, but good, good, good points there just because that did, I think that run provided so much confidence. And so much sort of like we can we can do some things we can be competitive at this level. I know right now not a lot of people know who we are, but we can be one of the top programs, and that really has paved the way because you look at the really the that that was the corner the corner turning moment right there. That was where they turned it, and then they look up in the last couple of years they've been really really dominant and near you know winning conference championships, playing for Final Fours. You know Sabrina continues to be one of the best players in women's basketball, and I think you're right. I think that those three wins to get there. Especially that Maryland win, that probably needs to be in discussion for that top three. I don't think it passes either Mississippi State or no. UConn, but it's. it's I mean, there were two seeds. I mean, you you, you yeah. can't you can't just gloss over a, a ten seed Oregon team full of freshmen, and I think Carzola and Adi Gilden were were sophomores, and Lexi Bando right. was junior, and just gloss over the fact that they upset a two seed like that. That's nuts. 
so, but yeah, right. The, 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 that run was was instrumental in getting them to where they are now, and, and probably something now that we're kind of counting down some of these careers with Sabrina and Ruthie in particular, where we go back and can really kind of acknowledge and appreciate what that tournament and what that run meant for where they are now. Because I do think you're right. I think that paves the way a little bit. That success there sets them up for success in following years. And now we look up and, and they're a team that's really battle tested in tournament play, battle tested against top tier programs. And I think that really did sort of get things started. Sixth question from at Josh Harden underscore four. If the women make it through the next four games unscathed, but drop the Stanford game, do you feel they can still get the number one overall seed for the tourney, regardless of the Pac-12 tournament outcome? Um, this is an interesting question here. Um, I think the thing you have to think about when you're talking about if they were to just lose to Stanford, and, and his scenario here means they would beat the Arizona schools this weekend at home. They would then go on the road and beat UCLA and USC and then lose to Stanford the following weekend. The thing we have to be aware of with Stanford is if Stanford continues to win and Oregon continues to win and then Stanford beats Oregon in that one spot there, Stanford would be in position to win the Pac-12, to be in the position to have the number one seed in that Pac-12 tournament and would have a very similar, uh, I guess, resume to what Oregon has. Obviously, they don't have a win over UConn. Um, obviously, they don't have uh, a couple of other things. Obviously, Oregon has that, that one win in Eugene, but I think a loss at Stanford would kind of nullify that. That could make things sort of interesting. So I, I, I think you really that game at Stanford to me continues to be the most important game on the schedule. I know that's not shocking or anything because they are the highest rated team Oregon faces. It's on the road. It's a couple of weeks from now. Everybody's kind of circling it on the calendar. But I, I, I do think if they lose that game, even if they win it all the rest of the games, but if they lose that game and Stanford's also continuing to win every game, that potentially does set up a scenario where, where Oregon could be challenged there by Stanford for that spot just because you could say, wow, Stanford won the Pac-12 because Stanford had, didn't, didn't have a loss like Oregon did to Arizona State. You know, Oregon's lost to Arizona State while it's kind of, you know, in the rearview mirror now. That could be a loss that really could bite them because if Oregon wins out and Stanford wins out and Oregon loses to Stanford, suddenly Stanford wins the wins the conference of the number one seed in the Pac-12 tournament and, and now you have a legitimate argument that Stanford um, deserves to be uh, that top seed in Portland uh, over Oregon. Now, I still think Oregon, if you just look at the two resumes, is clearly in better position than Stanford right now. But that game could change some things, and I think that's something you have to be aware of. That That is a potentially very, very, very important game, not just for the Pac-12 championship, but potentially for NCAA seeding as well. I think for Oregon to lose the regional, they would have to – Lose the Stanford game by a significant margin and then lose the Stanford, lose to Stanford in the Pac-12 tournament probably by a significant margin again and yet still drop one more game for that to happen because I think it's pretty clear that Oregon is the best team in the Pac-12 but and, and even if they have kind of the same records one or one or two Oregon has that humongous margin of victory at home. They've played a tough schedule. They've got the, the, the road win on the road. I mean, Oregon has two top five road wins, or one top five road win and then another top ten road win on their, on their docket already, uh, because they beat Oregon State. Um, and they could potentially have another one if, if, like Josh says, if they are unscathed and they beat UCLA, that could be another top ten road game. So I, I think they're gonna have to drop a couple 
not just the Stanford game by itself. It certainly makes some intrigue, but this is where we look at things and not all wins are equal. And even though teams are very similar in record, not all wins are equal. And so if Oregon loses by two or three points or four or five points or six or seven points at Stanford and then does it again in the Pac-12 tournament by one or two points or three or four points, I don't think that's really going to ding Oregon from, from losing the regional. And more so, it's just going to help Stanford get a higher seed. And the other thing you have to remember with Stanford is that they also have a lot of big potential wins or losses up on the schedule. They play UCLA. I guess it'll be tonight when you're listening to this um, at home. That is a very, very big game. That is a game where it's a couple hours after Oregon plays Arizona. If you get home, you get a chance to watch. That game could be critical for um, the Pac-12 championship race and how all that plays out. They then also play, obviously, they play Oregon at home in a couple weeks. That means they play Oregon State in a couple of weeks, and that game could potentially be significant. And then they finish the season on the road at Arizona at Arizona State. We've seen how tough that road trip has been. Oregon lost Arizona State, played Arizona very, very tough. Oregon State did the same. Um, so this is – it's not like Stanford has an easy finish to the conference season, and that's – again, there, there aren't very many easy weekends in the Pac-12 period right now. The conference is the best in the country. It seems like every single pair of schools you travel to or, or that travel to your place, one of them is ranked, one of them is a potential top two or three seed in the tournament. So it, it, it is easy – you know, it's, it's hard to find those weekends, and, and Stanford is, is like Oregon. They have to finish with some tough games here, and it – Again, if they were to if they were to win out, they would have a strong case. I think Matt brings up good points about the head-to-head. Oregon definitely, obviously, you know that 32-point win is going to be hard. I think for the selection committee to ignore. But uh, Stanford could make things interesting if they went out and, and Oregon loses that game, and if Oregon loses a couple or another one here, maybe they lose to UCLA on the road next weekend. Things could get interesting. But I do think Oregon is is definitely in strong position, and they control their own destiny um, if they can just kind of continue to play the way they've been playing. Over the last couple of weeks, I don't personally see a scenario where they're not going to be that number one overall seed because I don't see them losing very much, if at all, even down the stretch here with some tough games. Seventh question from at PDX Trex. Does Infali Dante get healthy slash integrated slash adjusted slash comfortable? A lot of slashes there. <laughs> Enough to become the type of player that makes the key plays to win games for Oregon in March. Um, and before I hand it to, to Matt here, we should note that Dante, it sounds like, will not be available in this weekend's Civil War. So that would be, what, five straight games he's missed, Matt? Yes, five straight. He missed the second half of the Washington game and then the USC-UCLA games and now most recently the Cal-Stanford game. So this would be five straight and technically, you know, five and a half straight games. Do you think – yeah, do you think he can get, I mean, do you think he'll get there? Will he be able to get, I mean, it, it's becoming a question of how many games can he actually get before they get into postseason play because he's just not getting healthy. Right. And that's the issue is that he was already behind when he showed up. He was out of shape when he showed up, still learning the system. And this was a critical week for him to get caught up and he's not cleared to play. He's not cleared to practice. I'm starting to think, I'm starting to believe he's not going to be a consistent contributor down the stretch for Oregon, which is unfortunate because he kind of covered up a lot of holes that, that Oregon had on both ends of the floor or potentially could fill those holes because of his size. But at this point in the year, it, it's really difficult to, to see a guy who hasn't played a ton of basketball with his team, hasn't played uh, a lot of, hasn't been involved in a lot of practices and is 
still in his like what second month with the team, third going on his third month with the team, and yeah. half that time has been spent hurt almost, um, or or trying to get himself adjusted uh, to just running up and down the court playing Division One basketball. I mean, that doesn't mean he's not going to play the rest of the year. Maybe he doesn't even too. I mean, I. I'm, I, I think you wonder if, if he's been out for two and a half weeks, going on three weeks now, this isn't just some kind of minor injury. It, it must be bigger, more, you know, worse than we were expecting. And if he can't practice, he's not going to have a chance to make an impact because you have to be on the floor during practice to, to really understand what you're doing and, and where you need to be on the court on both sides of the, of the floor. And so, Maybe maybe a, a, another week gives him some time off and he can regroup and you know the final week, week of, Mar- of of February into March he can start playing some basketball. But it's it's almost up to that point now where Oregon's just going to have to to move on. And if if there's a game that presents itself where you know you, you play him maybe for three or four minutes in the first half, see what he does, and and if if he holds his own, then you play him. And if he doesn't, then you you just kind of have to move on. Not one of the questions, but I just want to acknowledge the fact that Oregon will be especially light in the front court on Saturday because Francis Okoro, another one of their, their second biggest player on the team, but behind Enfali Dante, who's obviously not playing, uh, Okoro back home in Nigeria, it looks like because his father passed in December. Yeah. Really, really sad. Um, Matt, just what did Dana Altman have to say about that? Because I think that's significant both from, a, from the team perspective, but more importantly, from an individual perspective, that has got to be very difficult for a teenager to be going through what he's going through that far away from home. I, 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 that's a ton of, ton of sympathy towards him, towards what has got to be a very difficult situation. Yeah, Altman said that he, he's been away this week. He's out of the country in Nigeria to, to attend the celebration of his dad. That's how he, he phrased it. Uh, his dad passed away unexpectedly the day before the Montana basketball game which dates back to Montana was played December 18th. And in that game, he had arguably his best game of his career, 12 points, 17 rebounds. And ever since then, he's just not played well on the court. And I think this kind of explains why. And Dana Altman was asked, does, you know, Okoro's struggles, does that kind of, show, you know, this kind of explain why he hasn't played well the last month and a half or so. And he didn't want to say yes. He didn't want to say no, but he he would say like for a young man, whether he's a basketball player or not, it's a difficult time when a parent dies. And he mentioned that Okoro is taking it hard because he's the oldest son and he hasn't been home in a very long time and hasn't seen his family in a very long time. And so he said, yeah, he, he could see how it, it could factor into things, but he, Altman probably didn't want to speak for Okoro. But yeah, this is, and Altman said this is from just a basketball standpoint, this is a sting for Oregon because he was a guy against Stanford in that loss that he played 20 minutes. He had just two points, but he had five rebounds. He had a couple steals. He got a block shot. And more importantly, he said he, he really brought a lot of energy, a lot of toughness. A, a lot of defensive communication that this team was lacking. And Altman said himself that he probably made a mistake in not playing Francis Moore in that game. And now he's not available for at least the Oregon State game this weekend. And Oregon's going to have a hard time 
without Okoro because, look, go back to last year. I mean, everyone talked about how Pritchard kind of turned a corner to save the season late in the year, but you talk to the players, you talk to the coaches, and everyone pointed at Okoro as kind of being that that foundation, that stabilizing force, the the voice of reason, and a guy that's been emotional and uh, uh, an energy leader for this Oregon team, and he's your tallest contributor. I mean, Dante is the tallest, but he hasn't played much, and he's not going to play. And you're playing against the Beaver squad that's got a seven-footer in Kyler Kelly. They've got another seven-footer in Roman Silva. Uh, Peyton Dastrup's a, like a 6'11 guy. They got a lot of size up front. Tress Tinkle's another one, and Oregon's going to be, unfortunately, in a position where they've only got three forwards: Chandler Lawson, Shakur Juson, your two starters, and then C.J. Walker. Uh, that's going to put a huge emphasis on guys like Chris Duarte to play bigger than his six foot six size. Will Richardson at six foot five. Addison Patterson's probably going to have to play a lot now. Uh, this look, I'm I haven't made my decision on uh, the, the, the pick on the pick of the game, but. Right now, I'm leaning towards Oregon losing at Oregon State just because the lack of depth and the lack of size that Oregon's going to have going into the, that game on the road. And Altman said it himself on Thursday that Wayne Tinkle's team is always up, always prepared, and always ready for Oregon when they come to Corvallis. And Oregon has Oregon has not done a really good job playing in uh, Corvallis against the Beavers the last couple of seasons. They've, they've lost more than a fair share of, of games in Corvallis against Oregon State, and it would not surprise me in the lightest if Oregon dropped yet another game to the to the Beavers on, on Saturday night. This probably sounds like an extreme measure, and it, it probably is, but could you see a scenario where maybe they look at Luke War, who's currently redshirting, he's got a little size 6'8", six, 6'9", six freshman who hasn't played all season. Could you see them getting to the point where they go, Gosh, we just need some bodies up front, and we're going to burn a redshirt year just because we don't have them. Or is that too, is that too big of a a jump to make at this point? I, I, they're not going to do that. I mean, there's so few games left. Maybe if War presents himself and says, "Hey, I want to play. I don't care," then they'll do it. But if 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 it's not if it's up to the coaches, they're not going to burn a year. It's it's not worth it. All right, eighth question. From at March Madness 83, men's basketball has some issues on defense with rebounding, rim protection, and positional interior defense. Current roster may improve positional defense and rebounding with some experience, but there's no elite shot blocker. Looking at Oregon's targets for the 2020-2021 season, I don't see anything that will help. Am I wrong? Uh, Matt, what, what do you know in terms of some guys they may be looking for in the front court? Um, in this upcoming recruiting class, are there some possible options that could be solutions or, or kind of what do you see there? Um, when you look at recruiting for, for Oregon for, from a basketball perspective, I think you also need to look at kind of who's on the roster right now. I mean, Luke Wurr is a guy next season that's going to become available and he was, he's incredibly long. I mean, he's like six foot nine, but his arms, Dangle almost past his knees. I mean, he, he's incredibly long. He's going to be a shot blocker for Oregon. Reminds me a lot of similar body type to a Miles Norris or a Chris Boucher in that they're just alligator arms. Like they go forever, it feels like. Um, that would help. And then I think Eugene Umari, while he's not a shot blocker, he's a guy that's a, a terrific rebounder. At the, at the college level too. And he's like six foot, 
I want to say six foot seven, like 230 pounds. He's a big dude. I mean, he looks, when you watch, I, when I go to basketball practice and at media availability and he shows up to start working out, it's like he should be a football player. He looks like a football player. And as a junior this past season at Rutgers, he averaged almost 14 points and just over seven rebounds a game. He had seven double doubles for the Rutgers Knights last season. Uh, a guy that also is a really good defender and taking charges. He had 23 over the course of last year, scored in double digits on 22 occasions. So I think that's going to be a guy that next season will help Oregon in the front court with some size. He's not a shot blocker again, but he's a guy that, that has some serious, you know, girth to him and some strength and low post game and rebounding and toughness that, that you want at the forward spot. And then look, I, I think, we we could maybe see Isaac Johnson come back from his mission. People forget about him. He was a four star right. center, six foot eleven guy. Um, he's on a mission right now, a religious mission. I don't know if it's a one year or if it's a two year, but I I'll look into that and figure it out. Um, so he could become available next season for Oregon potentially. As for guys that they're gonna sign in the high school period, there there are a couple players that are 2021 prospects that could potentially reclassify and go into the 2020 class and help Oregon at that level. Um, but if Infali Dante comes back and gets healthy and has a full year of, of basketball, I would certainly think he would solve a lot of those problems. Okoro healthy. I mean, he's had – we don't talk a lot about Okoro's just – overall year, but he he's had a ton of injuries. And it's really unfortunate. I mean, foot injury in the off season, he's had now a shoulder injury, you know, I think it was a labrum injury, uh beginning of the year. That's why he's wearing the brace and, and now he's dealing with the passing of his late father. So he you know his development's really been been impacted the last you know six months, seven months, and maybe we'll see what he can do. But in terms of 2020 guys, if if they go out and find somebody, it's going to be a JUCO guy or it's going to be, I think, a grad transfer just because there aren't very many guys out there yet that are high school prospects that are worthy of using a scholarship and bringing them on, in my mind. So, all right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast, a Friday special edition. Thank you for listening. For Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Bream. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.